there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. As we've been saying, to come to Jesus is to surrender myself to his mastery. It is a matter of life and death. I'm faced with a choice to do the thing or merely to look at it, to obey or to speculate, to question or to throw myself into the lion's den or the furnace. What may look like death is revealed as life, and this is the conflict between the secular mind and the spiritual mind. Everything is upside down. In order to be Christians, we have to stand on our heads to look at the world. Jesus certainly must have made the crowds stand on their heads when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, happy are they that mourn. Paradoxes all the way through scripture, and today's subject is a paradox, isn't it? What may look like death is revealed as life, to obey is to begin to live, to live spiritually. But as any tiny little tot that you're trying to teach to obey knows, obedience means death to himself. He doesn't get to do what he wants to do. He has to do what mommy wants him to do. And that requires a radical form of death. To move into a new quality of life, to become what God wants us to do, is to become far more of a man or a woman than we could have ever been before. To quote MacDonald again, no abstract truth held by purest insight can make a man free, but the truth done, the truth loved, the truth lived by the man, the truth of and not merely in the man himself, that is the truth that makes him free. The truth done, loved, and lived. So now, third title for my talk, for a talk, is The Crucified Life. And I'm sure you could guess that my text is Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The principle of sacrifice, illustrated in bread, illustrated in childbirth, illustrated in the child having to give up his right to himself and do what his mother wants him to do, is a principle that runs like a red thread all the way through scripture. We could begin uh, with Cain and Abel. We could look at Abraham's supreme test when he was asked to sacrifice his only son, the most precious thing in his life the son through whom God was to fulfill his staggering promise that didn't stagger Ab Abraham, was to be offered. And there are many Old Testament examples. I put down quite a few of them here. I think I better just skip over them pretty rapidly, but we may come back to them if we still have time at the end. I love the story of the widow of Zarephath. 
imagine God choosing a widow, a poor, destitute widow, to feed the prophet Elijah. He had been fed by ravens, and then God sent him to this place where there was a famine, of all things, and of all people, to appoint to feed him a widow who was so destitute that she was in the process of gathering a few sticks to make a little fire to cook the very last handful of flour and few drops of oil to make a cake for her and her son so that they would then die. This was going to be the last meal. And along comes the prophet Elijah and not only asks her for something to eat, but asks her when she tells him that she only has a few drops of oil and a handful of meal, he said, please make me a cake first. And in that recognition of the widow of Zarephath, that it was God that was talking to her. It was the voice of God through the prophet. She gave everything. And the prophet, of course, told her that the cruise of oil would not fail, nor would the barrel of flour ever empty. She was given the privilege of offering all that she had, the principle of sacrifice. And out of that, she not only found that she had food to feed all of her family, she apparently had more of a family than just the son that she was talking about. And later on, because she entertained the prophet in her home, he was able to raise her son from the dead. That story is in 1 Kings 17, in case you would like the reference. And then there's that beautiful story of Ornan, the one who owned the threshing floor, in 1 Chronicles 21. King David asked if he could buy the threshing floor so that he could build an altar to the Lord, so that the plague on the people could be stopped. Sell it to me, he said, at the full price. Arauna is the name that's translated Ornan in some of the other translations. But Arauna said to David, take it. Let my lord the king do whatever he, whatever pleases him. He was ready to give him the threshing floor, which was his only means of livelihood. And he wasn't even going to take a price for it. And then, in verse, the same verse, 23, look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offerings. I will give all this. Talk about reckless. I mean, he was just turning over absolutely everything he had in order to make an altar for the Lord, a place for an altar. The principle of self-giving and sacrifice. Then we could go to the New Testament, Mary's instant response to the message from the angel. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. Here I am, Lord, all of me for you forever. Do anything you want with me. Total self-sacrifice, self-offering. And John the Baptist, have you thought about the words that he replied when the, the other disciples came along and they said, this man over here, Jesus, is baptizing more people? And John the Baptist said, that's my joy. I must decrease, and he must increase. The principle of self-sacrifice. 
Now, why must we die? Well, we're already dead in trespasses and sins. And in that kind of death, there is no possibility of harmony with God. The relationship is ruptured. And you and I must desire change. We must want to change. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Those are very powerful, active verbs, aren't they? Put off and put on. There's no pussyfooting about what we're supposed to do here. You were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. In my first talk, we thought a lot about the deceitful desires of the flesh. Chasing after wind, what do you get out of it? How long does the satisfaction last? One of the things that I find very sad about the lives of little children nowadays is that they have too many toys. And I die over this when I go to visit my grandchildren. There doesn't seem to be much of anything that Val and Walt can do about it because Val being, Walt being the pastor of a church, everybody in the church wants to give these children, children toys. And Val has tried all kinds of things, putting some of them away in the closet and, of course, trying to give away toys all the time. But they just have too many things, and it makes life so complicated. And the only thing to do is to put away, put off, get rid of the old self. Those things are not going to satisfy on Christmas Day, you see children just tearing open the packages as fast as they can, flinging aside the new toy, hardly can wait to open the next one. And by the end of the day, everybody's exhausted and nobody seems to be having very much fun at all. I was just telling somebody the other day how we used to play house, and we didn't have a playhouse made out of wood, let alone a bright red or bright yellow one made out of plastic. We made houses out of chairs. We would put a chair over on the side and then drape a blanket over on it, over it, we had a house, or I would move two small dressers that I had in my bedroom into the corner, make a little house there. It took us a long time to play games like that because we had to improvise everything. And when Valerie lived in the jungle, she had virtually no toys at all, and she and the Indian children amused themselves endlessly with sticks and stones and leaves and fires and knives and swimming in the river. Fires and knives can keep you occupied for a long time. <laughs> and the children, I never, they never cut themselves. They never burned themselves. They learned from the time they were toddlers how to handle fire and how to handle knives. You can imagine Valerie's grandmothers were not very excited to think that she played with fires and knives instead of with the toys that they wanted to send her. But that's not where satisfaction is. Put off your old self, which is corrupted by deceitful desires. 
And then what? To be made new in the attitude of your minds. It is a qualitative difference. And to put on the new self created to be like God. Created to be like God. Who are the godly people you know? What is it that characterizes them? Probably peace is one of them. Such a rare quality. Joy. Not fun, not happiness, but joy. Probably some of the godliest people you know are the people who have suffered the most. And I'll guarantee that every godly person you know has suffered. Joy is not incompatible with suffering. It comes out of that. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in your outline, number one is the great principle of sacrifice and offering. Number two is desire and will. We need to make a distinction between desire and will. I, I will to do a lot of things I don't want to do. Anybody does. Most people don't want to get up in the morning when the alarm goes off. They will to get up in the morning because they have to. I know a lot of housewives that don't really enjoy housework, but they do it because the housework needs to be done. Now, I have, I'm one of those weirdos that just absolutely loves housework. And to me, it's much more fun to do housework than it is to sit and try to write a book or prepare a talk. So I do my housework after I've done all the rest of it, because we were raised in our home that you have to eat your spinach before you get your dessert. And to me, the writing is the spinach. It's the tough part. It's what really takes taking myself by the scruff of the neck and sitting myself down and making myself do it. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't hate it. I don't hate any job that God has given me to do, but housework is just so easy by comparison. You know how long, you know what to do, you know how long it's going to take, you know exactly what the results are going to be. You have no idea when you sit down to write a book if it's what to do. When I get to about page two, I say to myself, what in the world ever gave me the idea I could write this book? And Lord, why didn't you give me the brains of C.S. Lewis? <laughs> And he said, because I didn't want you to write the books of C.S. Lewis, I gave you this set of brains, and you got to, you're stuck with this, and this is what you've got to work with. Desire and will. The highest creation in man is the will, not the intellect, not the reason, not the emotions, but the will, because God created us with the power to choose, and we've talked about that. And until the highest thing in me, which is my will, meets the highest in God, which is God's will, our relationship, our true relationship is not a spiritual fact. It is when I will to do his will. Two distinct wills make a harmony. Now, the simple illustration of a parent and child. Children are born rebels. We are born in sin. We are born with a sinful nature. How long does it take a mother to, to recognize that in a newborn? It is amazing, isn't it? Within a few days, you see that infant trying to manipulate you and trying to get his way. 
And some of you may have heard Jan Wismer on my radio program some months ago when I had talked about disciplining children She was when she was still the announcer. She came on at the end of the program and told of what she and her husband had done the first night they brought their brand new baby home from the hospital. They had read the book that I have often recommended, My First 300 Babies. It's a wonderful book about how to institute scheduling and disciplining in a loving and flexible, free way to make happy children. And they had read this book, and they decided that they would do exactly what Gladys Hendrick tells them, because a woman who can speak with the authority of having used this method on 300 babies that she had delivered and then stayed in the home to help the mothers institute the program, that woman speaks with authority. And so Jan said, when the baby was warm and dry and fed, they told her that it was time to go to sleep. <laughs> and she went to sleep, but she woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, normally people think you've got to feed the baby at 2 o'clock in the morning, but they were going by Miss, Mrs. Hendrick's schedule. And some of you are going to get very angry at me for even telling this story, but it was Jan Wismer that told this story. It's not me talking. But this is just an illustration. She said, the baby screamed at 2 o'clock, and I don't remember how long she screamed, but it was a long enough time. I, it doesn't take more than about a minute and a half of listening to a newborn baby scream. And I remember when my baby was born, we were I was staying in Marge Saint and Nate Saint's house. That's where Valerie was born. And we were sitting at the at the table a few days after her birth, and she was crying. And Nate made the remark, isn't it a good thing that God made a baby's cry the most irritating sound in the world? <laughs> if he hadn't, the human race would never have survived. They, everybody would starve to death. He came to me later. This is typical Nate Saint. He said he was so sensitive and tender-hearted and he came to me he said Betty I hope I didn't offend you by what I said about Valerie's crying and I didn't even know what he was talking about I said offend me he said I wasn't just talking about her crying he said I just meant it as a general statement and I couldn't agree more but to listen for 90 seconds in the middle of the night to an infant screaming is pretty tough but Jan and her husband just decided that the they didn't know any other way to get across to this baby that she was supposed to sleep. And so they let her cry. And the amazing thing, the end of the story, Jan said she never woke up again. Never once did she ever wake up again at 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, I think that's just incredible because I had a baby that woke up three times every night for about eight months. And if I had just had sense enough to let her cry for a little while, she might have gotten the message. But the point I'm making is that the parent knows and wants the best for the child. There is a time to sleep and a time to wake, a time to play, a time to be rocked to, a time to be sung to, and a time to be quiet. And Jan wanted to get across this message, and she got it across. The child does not know and cannot want the best. And that's the problem with you and me and God. There's a deadlock because he will not give us a stone when we need bread, but sometimes we ask for stones. And he cannot give us the stone because of his love, and his answer is no. Love cannot be satisfied 
until the child is freed from himself. And the mother's job is to take this little barbarian and civilize him, make him get along withable, make him unselfish, make him think about his brothers and sisters, make him pass the butter to daddy first, make him share the cookies, make him share his toys, to say no to himself, because he will never be free. The most impossible people we know are the selfish people who have never been taught to give in, to give up, to give out, to give over. It's me, me, me. I've got to feel good about myself. I've got to do this and that. I've got to do my own thing. I've got to live my own life. How many of you mothers have been asked, but you don't have any life of your own, do you? I've tried to think what in the world my mother would have said to that question, which I'm sure she never heard. She certainly would have said, my children are my life. What a gift. And what a gift it was to us to have that kind of a mother. It is a painful process of being freed from ourselves. The parent suffers more than the child does. You spank the child and you say, this hurts me more than it hurts you, and no child ever believes that until he grows up and becomes the spanker. And he knows that it is agony in the parent. Lars and I had the most interesting dinner with a young couple who have a one-year-old. and they, did, they had both come from dysfunctional families, and they did not have clue number one about disciplining that child, and she was a brat. We didn't meet the child. Their descriptions of her, of her made it very obvious that she was a brat. And manipulating them, running the entire household, and they were exhausted, and they didn't know what to do. And we spent the entire dinner talking about it, and everything I said, but they'd say, but I, I thought that would be cruel. I thought it would be cruel to not to let her come into the shower when I'm in there. She says, she won't let me take a shower. Now, I said, why don't you just close the bathroom door? And she said, but she'd be screaming outside the door. I said, well, I, she might, if she's going to scream outside the shower curtain, she might as well scream outside the door. Well, all sorts of little things like this. But this, these dear people, they were so tender-hearted, and, and they loved this child so much that they had no idea that the child would be freer and happier if she were disciplined. Jesus said, if you continue in my words, then you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But there are three steps before the freedom comes. It is obedience to the word, then you, know, then you are my disciple, then you are a learner, then you know the truth. And then the truth will make you free. But how many times have you heard just the last phrase quoted? The truth will make you free. But how do you get the truth? How do you learn it? Obedience. Discipline. The parent suffers with a child. I remember the first time I saw my little grandson, Jim, having a tantrum when he was about 18 months old, I guess. And I had been left to be the babysitter. He had... He had put on the tantrum because his parents went out the door and he suddenly realized that he was stuck with Granny. And that was the last thing in the world he wanted. He threw himself on the floor, he banged his head, he screamed, he kicked. And I picked him up in my arms 
with great difficulty because he's screaming and kiss, kicking, and you know how a child just stiffens himself out, and he's screaming in my ear. And I said, Jim, would you like me to read you a story? He screamed. I said, Jim, would you like some apple juice? And he screamed. I said, Jim, shall we go and sit in the chair and rock? And he screamed. And I prayed, Lord, what am I going to do with this child? Because I'm his grandmother, I didn't want to spank him. I think I might have done something a little bit more physical for the tantrum if I had been his mother. But being his grandmother, I was not going to resort, resort to that. So I prayed. And the thought came, why don't we go outside? Let's go outside, Jim. And it was a beautiful, balmy summer night in, in Mississippi and the smell of the jasmine and the moonlight and all this, he just instantly calmed down. But he had to go where I wanted to go, and he had to be held and confined in my arms. If he had conformed immediately, both of us would have been delivered from the pain and the tantrum. God is beseeching us to come out of our funk, out of our tantrum, into his arms, to be quiet, to listen. Come to me, Jesus said, you who are tired, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy. There is no easy yoke except the yoke of Jesus. My burden is light. Every other burden crushes us. And many of you are tired and overburdened. We have to come in the sense in which we're talking about today. All the energy of tenderest love is reaching out to you and wanting to give you joy and rest and an easy yoke and a light burden instead of that crushing burden and that hard yoke. And just recently, there was a situation in my own life where I realized that Jesus was saying exactly this to me, take my yoke. And so, because I'm a very physical, down-to-earth kind of a person, I just got down on my knees and I tried to imagine that yoke on the back of my neck. And I said, Lord, I know it's on yours too, and you always bear the heaviest side of the yoke, but I'll take it. I'll take it. And there was peace. There was rest that you might have my joy fulfilled in yourselves, Jesus said in John 15. My joy, not the world's happiness, not the fun, but my joy fulfilled in yourselves. Now what is it that has to be nailed to the cross? When we say that verse, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. What is it that is left, is nailed to the cross? Well, what is it that the child has to leave in the bedroom when he has been put there for punishment? What is it that he has to leave on the time-out chair, which is a punishment? It is the stubborn self-will. Harmony is established when the child at last does the thing he ought to do. And the father and the mother who are wise are only asking the child to do what he ought to do. It's not a matter of getting my will because it's my will. It's a matter of delivering this poor little child from, him, from himself, from his selfishness, from his stubbornness, from his rebellion, in order to free him. And when the child finally does what the parent is asking him to do, he's happy. I can remember my mother often saying that 
her one son, Dave, particularly, tuned up for spankings. And he would just do these little bad things, and they'd just get worse and worse and worse, and Mother would say, you're tuning up for spanking. And when the spanking came, she said the whole air was just cleared and everything was fine. And Dave was happy and everybody else was happy because it was over with. What, what has been nailed to the cross is my stubborn self-will. And again I say, God does not insist. He does not coerce us. He calls us. He woos us. He draws us. He stands at the door and knocks. He wants to come in and eat supper with us. In every experience, he stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him into this area? Will you share with him this experience in everything by prayer and supplication? Why didn't I think of praying about that little boy's tantrum immediately instead of six minutes later when I'd reached the end of my rope and tried everything else? Why didn't I immediately do that? And the other night, one of this young mother asked me a question that I really couldn't answer about something that had become a habit with her daughter. And I tried to think of a good answer, and I couldn't, and I said, next time it happens, I would just get down on your knees with the girl, with the child, put your arms around her and pray, and ask the Lord to show you what to do. I can't give you any suggestions. I know Elizabeth Elliot comes across as seeming to have an answer for everything, and she knows exactly what everybody else in the world ought to do, but I don't. <laughs> a lot of times I have to say I don't know. God woos and draws and knocks and invites and loves us, and he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. But only if you want to be my disciple. You don't have to be my disciple. There are a dozen other rabbis you can follow. But if it's me you want, if it's the living bread, if it's the living water, if it's the life which is eternal, there isn't any other way. It has got to be nailed to the cross, that self-life. It's got to go. Paul was knocked cold on the road to Damascus. And his response was, what do you want me to do? That was a willed response. Had nothing to do with emotions. We will to do the will of God, never mind how you feel about it. Now, when I talk about these things, I get people coming up and saying, well, you know, Mrs. Elliot, I just don't see how in the world you got rid of all your feelings. Do I come across as somebody who's gotten rid of all her feelings, almost all of them? Well, my answer to that is, when you bring a child under obedience, you're not getting rid of the child, you are disciplining the child. When you bring a racehorse, when you break a horse and bring him under the rein and the bit and the bridle, you're not getting rid of the racehorse, you are disciplining him, you are bringing him under control. That's what I'm talking about. You bring your emotions under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference how I feel about this thing, this is what I'm going to do. And that's a very important thing to remember when it comes to forgiving somebody. I haven't got time to talk about that this morning. But who feels like forgiving the person who has done that impossible and unforgivable thing? We're not going to feel good about that. The Bible simply tells me, I must. This is what you must do. 
So life begins when I will to do his will, a vital, vibrating, free, and joy-filled life. Which brings me to point three, life out of death. Joy-filled? Crucifixion? I don't know what that lady meant who wrote to me and said, why is your program so sad? But I guess she's probably heard me talk about these things many times. And crucifixion is a form of torture. I am crucified with Christ. Now, it's Paul who wrote the joy epistle, isn't it? And he wrote it while he was chained in prison, and he said, it is my joy to suffer for you. And there's another one of those incomprehensible paradoxes that Christians have to stand on their heads in order to see things right, and the world just washes its hands of us and says, you're crazy. Last night I was talking down at Labrie to, on the subject of missions, and of course there were the questions of, how do I explain my desire to be a foreign missionary to my non-Christian friends or my non-Christian relatives? I said, I don't think you can. Any more than I could explain the motivation that sent my husband and four other missionaries into savage territory to take the gospel. Reporters came to us and said, why did they do it? And I said, I'll give you the answer, but it will not make any sense to you. Christians are people whose lives don't make any sense except in terms of another world. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, we have this treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This treasure we have in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And I liked Philip's translation, knocked down, but not knocked out. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. The power of the life of Jesus in these bodies of ours. I'm nothing but a clay pot. I suffer all kinds of trouble, Paul says. Every day we experience something of the death of Jesus. We are exposed to death in order that the life of Jesus may be plainly seen. The crucified life is the free life, the joy-filled life, the peaceful life, the only life of rest. I read you that letter in my first talk this morning from the woman who said that she'd been in a miserable marriage, she had a, she had a handicapped child, and she said it is this teaching that has given me joy and freedom. Now, I've been listening for the last couple of days to a, a tape that somebody sent me. It's one of the worst quality tapes you've ever heard, and the baby noises in the background are just infuriating. Endless, endless baby ch noises, child noises. I don't know what kind of a church it must have been that the people could put up with it, because you can hardly hear the man for the noise. 
But as I listened to this tape, there was a dagger in my heart because it was on the subject of submission in wives. Has anybody here ever heard me talk about that subject? When I heard this tape, I thought, I don't know what I've been talking about because I haven't gotten to first base on what this means. And this talk was given by a man. What man nowadays would have the guts to stand up and talk to a mixed audience about submission? I thought, there's been so much talk coming out of my mouth and so little understanding of what this really means. And because I was preparing these talks for today while I was also listening to this tape, I'm not simultaneously, I listen to the tape when I'm <laughs> fixing lunch for Lars in the kitchen. You know, it's, it's the thing that God is putting his finger on in my own life that is going to have to come out in the talks. And no matter what subject I think I should talk about, there will be a test immediately as I'm preparing that talk. God is saying to me, what about you? You know, Are you pointing the finger at all those people? Here you are dishing it out on the radio every day, writing books about it, getting up there and talking about it. What do you know about it? So little understanding and so little obedience. Well, he emphasized the word reverence because it says in Ephesians 5 that a woman, a wife, is to reverence her husband. Now, I've thought about I am to submit to Lars as to the Lord. Lars is my head. Lars holds an office which he didn't earn or deserve, but which was assigned to him by God. I am to submit to him. But as for reverencing him, honor Respect, love, awe, solemn wonder, that's what reverence means, as for a holy being or exalted thing. I am to have the solemn awe as for a holy being and exalted thing for this human, sinful, fallible man whose bed I share, as to the Lord. And this man suggested, he said, put the Lord in your husband's chair. When your husband comes home from work at night, he sits down in his favorite chair. Well, this time you come in and it's the Lord sitting in the chair. And the Lord looks at you and says, may I have a cup of tea, please? And you say, oh, it's the Lord. I'll be glad to get you a cup of tea, Lord. What kind would you like? What do you take in it? And you've never fixed a better cup of tea in your life. And you bring it to him with reverence. And you give it to him. And he drinks the tea and he thanks you. And then he says, now I have to make an errand. Is supper ready? Yes, supper is ready. Would you mind keeping supper hot for me for half an hour while I go out and see this other person? Oh, yes, Lord, that would be fine. Oh, that's no trouble at all. I'll be glad to keep the supper hot. Put him in the chair. Now try this on your husband. <laughs> now he said, if you treated your husband like that, to reverence means to pay attention, to use your imagination to make him comfortable, to anticipate his needs, to rearrange your plans, 
to treat him like a king, to listen to what he says. Are you the one that does all the talking? Are you the one that does all the talking when you go out? My husband and I, we sit in restaurants and I say, you can always pick out the married people because the woman is doing the talking. If you see a man talking and a woman sitting there looking at him raptured, they're either having an affair or this is their first date. <laughs> But it's tragic. Praise him. This is part of what it means. Now the man who was preaching there, he said, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. Any man knows he doesn't deserve this kind of treatment. It, you don't give it to him because he deserves it. You are to submit to him as to the Lord. You are to reverence him as you reverence the Lord. And he said, what do you think is going to be the response of that man? Is he going to grind you under his heel? Is he going to get worse than he already is? Or is he going to get better? <laughs> Behind every great man there is a hidden woman. That was this man's point. We need to be hidden women. Now I cannot do that in myself. None of that comes naturally. I am crucified with Christ. Myself has got to go. Now try the opposites of what reverence means. Don't pay any attention when your husband talks. Don't Try to use your imagination to make him comfortable. He can get himself comfortable. Don't anticipate his needs. He can make a cup of tea just as well as you can. Let him do his own. And after all, you've been working all day. Certainly don't need to rearrange your plans. You're the one that's running the kitchen. Treat him like a slave, not like a king. Don't listen to a word he says. Certainly you don't want to praise him, criticize him, and you told him you loved him on your wedding day. You don't need to tell him again. <laughs> Does he deserve that? Would that make him a better man or a worse man? It's not deserts that has anything to do with it. How would I treat the Lord? Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brothers, you have done it unto me. How many times have I quoted that verse? Somehow I never pictured the Lord in my husband's chair. I've pictured him when I iron the shirt. I think I'm ironing this for Jesus. But the vitality of the crucified life depends on my death. And I have had many letters from women who tell me that when they started submitting to their husbands for the first time in their lives, it changed the whole atmosphere of their home. Reverence. If I insist on living my life I cannot live Christ's. If I am going to do my thing, I cannot do my husband's thing. If I am going to do my thing, I cannot be the mother that I need to be to my children or the grandmother that I need to be to my grandchildren. Crucifixion, it, it covers every area of our lives. It touches us. It cuts deeply. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And that is the most incredible mystery of the world, isn't it? Christ lives in me. 
and the life which I now live in the flesh, this aging, dying flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The vitality of the crucified life. I will begin to live with a capital L when I begin to be crucified, when I begin to forget about myself and live the life of Jesus Christ. And the only reason I went through all that long part about this little tape that I'd been listening to is because it's one illustration of the fact that the crucified life touches every single one of us in every human relation. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.